Amen. Thank you, Ed. My basketball career uh, stretched through one and a half seasons uh, during the late 70s as the third-string point guard for Shivers Junior High School in Vidalia, Louisiana. We were the Vikings, the mighty, mighty Vikings, and I was at the very end of the bench. And so, but here's the thing. I was, as a guy, a young man who had below average athletic skills and and the body style of a small bird, I was, that, that was the place for me was at the end of the bench, but I was fast. I was quick as a hiccup and I could move and I could motor. And it, when we ran the the, uh, the line drills at practice, you know, where you just have to run back and forth so many times, I was always the quickest on the team. Ball skills, yeah, not, not so much. But I made the team, and uh, I, was, I was shivers proud. You know what I'm saying? It was a big deal for me. But my coach had a nickname for me. He said, you know what you are, Richard? I said, what? He said, you're my pest. You're my pest. And that sounds like an insult, but it was actually cool because what he wanted me to do, and this happened at least two to three times every game, in a situation where we needed to do a full court press, he would put me in and he would say, you are the pest. I want you to follow the ball all the way down the court. Whoever has it, you get to them and get in their face. Make them mad. Wave your arms. Be crazy until they either uh, lose their concentration because of your weirdness or they foul you. And I took a couple of elbows over, over the course of that year and a half. I was the pest, and I was proud to be the pest. And coach would just say, you know, he'd walk into practice, how's my pest doing today? I'm like, your pest is doing great, coach. I'm ready to be obnoxious and bother people. It's a really good coaching and probably even parenting strategy for, uh, for junior high boys because it comes so naturally. But the thing is, is that that was my role I got maybe a minute and a half of playing time every game. And the only, everybody was under strict instructions, never under any circumstances, pass the ball to Richard. And I was told if I ever did end up with the ball in my hand, get rid of it to a person with the same color jersey as me as quickly as possible. But I was the pest. Now, my two sisters, they would come to each one of my games because they had to with my parents and my youngest sister who was, uh, who was several years younger than me in, in elementary school knew nothing about basketball and she asked me one time she said Richard why do you do what you do on the court and she wasn't talking about being awesome and she wasn't talking about looking good in my uniform because I, I didn't either she was asking why I ran in this manic pattern all over the court waving my bony arms and getting really close up to the face of the other players. And I said, simply, I do that because I'm the pest. I pester people. Here's the thing. We've been talking about the, 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 the book, through the book of Ephesians for the past several Sundays. And, and we're talking about the identity crisis. The idea behind this is that if we can understand who we are in God's eyes, in God's assessment of us, in God's truth, 
and God's promises and God's words about us, then that can make a huge difference in our lives. I believe that our identity determines our activity. Our identity determines our activity. I did what I did on the court because I was the pest. And it got into my head that this is who I am. Coach is counting on me, and I'm going to do what I do. And I looked really stupid doing it, but I was successful. I had an identity. I loved it, and it dictated how I operated on the court. Now, as happens for most people when they're younger, they latch on to some sort of identity. Thankfully, mine was positive for a year and a half. We moved in the middle of the basketball season from Louisiana to Mississippi, and I moved to a school that, let me, how can I say this? They didn't keep a depth chart as deep as Shivers Junior High. They, didn't, they weren't interested in third-string point guards. They had plenty of pests. They had guys that were quicker than me. And suddenly, I found myself without, a, without an identity. And it was a difficult time for me. So my question for you is, what is your identity? What is it that you believe about yourself? We all are given identities. We're given labels. We're hurt. We hear words. We have things that are spoken to us over the years of our lives, often starting when we're very young and all the way through our lives. And we say, wow, that must be who I am. I don't know. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you could think of some of the labels, some of the identities that have been tagged onto you over the years. Maybe you're the smart one in your family or among your friends or, at, or where you work or where you go to school. Maybe you're the funny one, the one that keeps everybody laughing, the one that lightens the mood when stuff is going weird, when it, when it gets awkward. You're the one that kind of makes, makes everybody feel better. Maybe you're, maybe you're the screw-up. Maybe you're the one that always messes up. Maybe you're the one that people say, just give him time. He'll, he'll mess that up too. Just give her another year and she won't be able to keep it going. Maybe, maybe you have a label. Maybe you have a label that was put onto you. And that has become your identity. And I'm telling you, if it has, it determines your activity. It determines how you and I act. We are not what we do. I believe that with all my heart. We're not really what we do. However, what we believe about who we are makes us act in certain ways. And that's why it's so important for us to do this Ephesians study. And in the early chapters of the book of Ephesians. We're actually going to start in chapter 4 here in just a few minutes. But in the early chapters, it's like the Apostle Paul, the man who wrote this ancient text. He is just trying to drive into us that we have an identity that is all wrapped up in and all about what God says about us. The challenge for us, as we've said many times in the recent weeks, the challenge for us is what are we going to believe? What are we going to believe? And I, be, I think, and, and, and I've seen this happen in my life, that if I can get my head around and kind of get my heart and my thoughts pointed towards God's identity that He says about me, 
if I can start pursuing that, certain things start to take place in my life. So the title of our message today is Stuff Happens. Stuff happens when we as individuals and as a faith community, when we start listening to God and start taking the chance and and the risk that's involved in believing what God says about us as opposed to what we may have believed for many, many years. We might have believed for most of our life the labels that were put on us. And if we have believed them, then more than likely, we have spent our entire lives either trying to live up to those labels or trying to live them down. And what, when we start inserting the gospel of, of the Christian Bible into our lives, when we start inserting, overlaying the good news about Jesus Christ into our lives and allowing that to start affecting how we view ourselves and how we view God, when that starts happening, certain things begin to take place. Stuff happens. And we start to realize the life we've lived up till now, trying to live up to or live down the identity that we were given, the identities and labels that we were tagged with, that kind of life, we start to see it for what it is. An exhausting, no-win scenario. The ultimate Kobayashi Maru, there is no way to win if that is how our life goes. And there's re- the reason there's no way to win is even if we do have some mojo, and even if we are good at what we do, and even if we are able to say, this is who I want to be, and doggone it, I'm making it. I'm successful. One day, we're not going to be able to sustain it. One day, there's going to be some junior high kid that's faster than us. One day, there's not going to be a seat on the, on the team for us. It's not always going to work. And so we have to decide, are we going to continue living like that? Or are we going to embrace what God says about us? When we do, when we start to embrace what God says about us, stuff happens. So we're just going to look at the first half of the fourth chapter in the book of Ephesians. And we're just going to see what it is that the Bible says will happen in our lives and in the lives of the people around us if we start buying into what God says about who we are. You guys ready for that? Okay. handful of you are. That's very exciting. If you're not ready, sorry, we're doing it anyway. So we're going to look at chapter 4, verse 1. It's going to be on the screen. And it says, Therefore I, this is the Apostle Paul talking again. He's the author of this letter, which became a book of the Bible. He says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling because you have been called by God. You have been called by God. So I'm asking you, I'm begging you to live a life worthy of that calling. Now, just a little bit of an explanation of some of the language here. It says that we're all called by God. It says that you're reading this and you say, wow, I want to live a life worthy of that calling. When we're called by God, it is simply God calling out to us. 
And it also refers to God calling us certain things. He's saying, I want you to come to me. And, I, and, I, and here's what I think about you. It's a calling. It's a, uh, it, it, it doesn't mean necessarily, you know, when I was a kid growing up in church, there was this phrase that we used all the time. And it was called, or it was referred to, the term that they used was being called by God. And it was like, what does that mean? Does the phone ring? You know, I'm full of questions as a kid. I don't know. What does that mean, called by God? Did God call you? Has he called you? Did I miss the call? What they were referring to is they were saying, hey, you, if you're called by God, that means you're going to be a preacher or you're going to be a church worker. You're going to be a person. You're going to be a missionary. You're going to be doing something as an occupation that is, uh, that's a God thing, that's a church thing, that's a religion thing. That's what that term meant, to be called by God. But do you know that's not what the Apostle Paul is referring to? He's, he's referring here to all of us who answer Christ's invitation to come to him and receive forgiveness and be, and be a part of his family. We are called by God to come to him. And, in, and when we receive that call and when we respond to that call, all kind of amazing things become possible for us. So we're, we're called. God called us because he loves us and because he cares for us. There's another phrase that I want to show you, uh, pinpoint. It says, I beg you to lead, we'll, we'll stay, I'm sorry. Actually, I meant stay on the verse, my bad. If you can go, thank you, you're awesome. They, I, I'm, a, I'm a nightmare for the people on the soundboard. I just want everybody to be aware of that. <laughs> Getting applause. They're like, where is he going? We don't know. Um, so it says, lead a life worthy of your calling. So it's saying it's, saying it's important. God, is, I mean, Paul is begging us. I mean, if he's begging us, it's kind of a big deal, right? So he says, I'm begging you. Live a life worthy of your calling. So in other words, you're going to want to uh, make the way your life is uh, measure up to this spiritual calling. Can I just say and be honest with you guys that this verse was one of the most intimidating verses in my life for many, many years. And here's why. It's because I loved God. I was even called by God to be a minister. I was, a pre, I was like a full-time minister person. Did it my, most of my adult life. And so I definitely was bought in to the, to the Christianity thing. But do you know what? There was stuff in my life. There were problems in my heart. And there were secret sins that I would continually keep falling back into. And so when I would read this verse, I would go, I am the most unworthy. My life is not worthy of the calling that I've received. So I'm toast. I'm obviously just a horrible, I'm a fraud. I'm a fake. I'm a loser. Spiritually speaking. So now, can you see that identity rising over the years in my life? Because I was afraid I can't live worthy of this calling because I've tried and I keep messing up. Well, let me just explain a few things to you. First off, if you look at the word worthy, it's really not saying, God is not saying through Paul in this verse, you guys need to measure up. 
He's saying, I want your life to reflect what's important to you. He's saying, I want you to live a life that is suitable, that matches, that links up, that fits with someone who has decided to follow Christ. That's what this verse is saying. And, the, and, the, and, and as we study through Scripture, we understand that God is not requiring perfection of us. He's not heavy-handed with us when we, when we sin. He is eager to forgive and eager to restore the repentant heart. So to live a life worthy is not now this new high bar standard that none of us can reach. You know what it is? It's an encouragement that our goal should be that our life should, should suit, it should fit with what our calling is. Broken, imperfect people leaning in towards God to follow Him. But my favorite thing about this verse is the first word. Say the first word in the verse. You guys, man, one, two, three. Therefore. I love that word. Do you know why I love that word? Because if you ever see the word therefore in the Bible, then what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to put it in reverse and back up a few verses and read what he just said. Because if he says therefore, you need to find out what it's Therefore, that's cute, isn't it? I'm going to give you a minute to think about that. How clever the little pest is. All right. So, therefore, he says, I want, I want, I'm begging you to live a life worthy. Well, what did he say before that? What did he say right before this that made him say, since I said what I just said, live a life worthy of your calling? You go back to chapter 3 in verse 20, and he starts talking about how God, our God, our Heavenly Father, is able to do way more than we could ever ask or imagine. And he says, this, our God is so powerful, he can blow our minds with what he's capable of doing and what he can accomplish in our lives. And you know right before he said God is so powerful he can do stuff that will blow our minds? You know what he said before that? He said that his primary prayer, the thing he hopes the most will grow in our hearts is that we'll start to understand how massive God's love is for us. So he says God's love is off the charts for us and God is able to do way more than we can imagine. So, since those two things are true, I want you to live a life worthy of your calling. That's why the word therefore is my favorite word in this verse. Because the only way I can live a life worthy of the calling that God has for me is because His love is so out, uh, just astounding. His love for me is that crazy, wild love. And he can do more than my little mind can ever imagine. That's good news. So when we're told to live a life worthy, we're not like, we're not like God loves you and he's big and powerful. So you better act right, man. 
what Paul is saying is because he's that big and because he loves that much, what else? Why wouldn't we? What can we say? What Just offer it all to him and say, Lord, make this life matter. Make this life worthy. Isn't that good news? I'm going to pause right here. And I want to just share something. I'm going to take, take a moment. Um, when it says that we're called by God, understand, we're not, we're not just encouraged to add the God thing to our life. We're not just encouraged to say, oh, you know what? I'll start doing the church thing. I'll start kind of doing that. Maybe I'll read the Bible a little bit. Maybe I'll do this, blah, blah, blah. You know what? We're being invited to a life. We're being invited to a kind of life that is different than anything we've ever experienced before. A kind of life where we're encouraged to live worthily, not because we're awesome and not because we ought to know better and not because we can hopefully finally stop messing things up. We're encouraged to live this life because of God's great love and his amazing power for us. See, as a recovering addict, I I really wish, I, I, I would like my story to be, I kind of, I would prefer if my story was um, Richard realized he was doing wrong and he changed and he got better and he stopped using and he stopped hurting people um, and, uh, and now that proves that he's not the monster he, think, he, he thought he was. That's, that's what I want my story to be. I wish it was that. I wish it was just like, wow, look what Richard did. But that's not the story. The story is Richard came to the end of his rope. He came to the end of all the games, of all the deception, self-deception and deceiving others. I came to the end and I had no hope except for the fact that God loved me with a big, wide, deep, long love and that he is able to do stuff that really does seem impossible. And so that is why I'm recovering. That's why I'm healing. I'm not healing because I'm I'm awesome and I finally got it together and I finally said, you know, I'm tired of hurting people. I'm tired of being, you know, swinging from one extreme to the other. You know, like John Cougar Mellencamp said. He said, I know there's a balance in life because I see it every time I swing by, you know. I'm tired of that. So I just got better. You know what? That wasn't it. That's not how it worked. Only God's love and his power, both of which are immeasurable, both of which are unreasonable, rescued me and is rescuing me every day. That's how it works. Now, you might not be an addict, but we're all recovering from something. And it might be that you're like me. If you're, it, it, that could affect the way you see your parenting. It could be, affect the way you see your personal development and growth, your leadership skills, your on-the-job performance. You might plug that formula into uh, the other areas of your life and you say, I want to be the person that recognized the problem, fixed it, and everything's, and everything's better now. But what happens when we can't? What happens when I can't rescue my children? What happens when I can't fix everything? 
What happens when everything's falling apart and it is not well with my soul? What do we do then? We only have one choice in my opinion and that is to lean into the, into the deep love of God. To dive in, to jump in and say, wow, this is my only hope. And the, the mess that my life is only has one shot of getting healed or healthy or growing. And that is if God is powerful enough to do something I can't even imagine. This is why the book of Ephesians is like so, I mean, it's just amazing what God is saying to us in these verses. Our lives can change. But it won't be people looking at us. It, it won't be people looking at us and saying, wow, look how, look how they, uh, look how they pulled out of the tailspin. How did that, wow, that's amazing. They changed. How did that, it won't be people looking and saying, well, look what Richard did, man. His life was off the rails. And now it looks like it's going better. That's not the way the story will be told. You know what's going to happen because of, because of the re- way it really went down? Is that people are going to go, God must love that guy so much. And somebody in that conversation would go, but why? <laughs> and I would say, I know, right? I'm a mess. All I did was break promises and cycle through problems and get better and then go d- dive back into my issues and... And, I was, and they will say, God must love you. And I said, yeah. And I'll say, yes, he does. And that's the only thing that changed me. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in, and, and notice the lyric is not, my ability to finally get it right. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in my awesomeness. Time and years just finally taught me the lessons and now I'm better. No. That song is based on a verse in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, and it says, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love. It's only the love of God that is the portal. It is the portal, and that's why Paul talked about it. And then he said, let's live a life worthy. So one of the first things that happens when we start getting our minds directed towards God's identity for us as we start living a life that's worthy. And I just want to tell you, that hope exists for all of us here today. That might be one of the reasons that we're here today is that God could tell us there's hope. And it's not in you. It's not in me. It's not in our strength. It's not in any identity we had or used to have or still have. It's because of his great love for us. And the fact that he can do anything, even stuff that we can't even imagine. So we're going to live lives that start to suit up and fit with this this dream in our hearts of coming closer to God. It's going to start to fit. Our lives will start to fit because of his great love for us. So that's that's one of the things that happens. You know what? Another thing that happens is unity 
happens. Unity happens. Reading on in, in chapter 4, it's, it starts talking in verses 2 all the way through 6, but we're just going to kind of concentrate on 2 and 3. It, it starts talking about unity among other believers. And, and check, out, check out what it says. It says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. That's in the Holy Spirit of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Being united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Always be humble and gentle and be patient with the other. Making allowances for our faults. Why in the world would an organization or a group of people want to be known for making allowances for faults. Isn't that risky? Isn't that dangerous? Might we be taken advantage of? What if somebody never changes? What if they continue to do things that are unhealthy or hurtful? I, I understand that sounds like really weird, but why would we make allowances for each other's faults? Here's why. Because of all the allowances that God has making, made for ours. Because it says, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Not because it's a rule. Not because it's some expectation that's presented by a skinny preacher with a bald spot. But because of your love. Where does that love come from? You remember chapter 3? That ridiculous, unreasonable, unexplainable, doesn't make any sense kind of love that God has for us. This is what we extend to each other. We extend that to each other in hopes that that love will capture their hearts the same way it has captured ours. And it says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. I, I'm so glad it says united in the Spirit instead of united in opinions or preferences, you know, political Facebook posts or something like that. We can be united in the Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit of God who has poured out this amazing love that we've been talking about this morning. That's how we get that love in our hearts. The Holy Spirit pours out this love into us like we were a vessel or a vase or a thing of pottery and the love of God just keeps pouring in and overflowing and running out all, all over the sides. That's how we can be unified. We have to make every effort to be unified. So here's the deal. When we start getting our minds around our identity as God says it is, one of the great things that happens is we're going to find ourselves with the opportunities to connect and unify and be in cool relationship with other people who are on this faith journey. So that's what... That's one of the things that we dream about and pray about as leadership team at Church on the Trail. Is that, man, we could just be unified. That God would make us connected. That he would unify us, again, not over our favorite teams, God forbid. You know, talk about impossible. But uh, not over college football or not over politics or not over preferences and not over even the temperature in the room. Can I get an Amen. You know, it's about the unity 
in the spirit of God, which has started this whole thing by pouring out God's love into our hearts. So we believe that pursuing unity, it, it, says, it says make it every effort. Make every effort. Meaning we have to do stuff. Does that make sense? I'm not reading anything into this, right? I'm being, this is accurate. Make every effort. Doesn't that mean don't sit on your tukas? Can I say tukas in church? I just did, twice. So, make every effort. We got to do something. All right, so, and this sounds, this is going to sound contrived, but I asked Ed to allow me to do this. So, I'm right in the middle of my sermon, I'm going to make a pitch to you guys for something that we're doing as a church. Cue it up, boys. We're going to start doing something every third Wednesday of the month because I think even though it's not specifically said in the verse we just read, I think unity is assisted and built up and strengthened by food. You agree, right? Thank you. So once a month, we're going to have what we call a midweek gathering. We're really good at naming things. We chose that because it, you know, it's in the middle of the week. And, and so it's on the hump day. It's on Wednesday. And it'll be the third hump day of every month. And we're going to meet at 6 p.m. over on the Trail Kids side. And we're going to have a meal that will be provided for or, or be served by various groups on a rotating basis in our church. And you come at 6, and like from 6 to 6.30, we're going to eat. And then from 6.30 to 7, we're going to have worship for a few minutes. And we'll have a devotion. And then so around an hour-ish, then we're done and we go home. Costs a little bit of money, right? Because food costs money. So if you want to come and have supper with us once a month on the third Wednesday of every month, then come and uh, pay five bucks a head or 20 bucks at the most for a family, even if you have more than four people. You get the math there. I usually don't do math in public, but you understand what I'm saying, right? All right. And there's no child care because we want families to sit around the table and be loud because that's a good thing too, because that's reality. Look, here's the deal. We want to provide opportunities, just atmospheres and spaces for us to connect. This is not a magic wand that automatically means that we're going to be fulfilling Ephesians 4, chapter 3. Share a meal once a month, and suddenly you're unified in the Spirit. That's not what we're saying. However, what we are saying is we got to try something, Right? You feel me? And we do this. We do this with our small groups. And there are people here that have phenomenal connections and unity and, and, and connectivity with people from Church on the Trail. And that's great. We just want to provide another opportunity. For some of you, Wednesday, oh, forget it. That just never works. Six o'clock? No, can't do that. Bring my kids? You're crazy. You know, I don't know. You're saying that won't work for me. And I get it. That's okay. I'm asking you to give it a shot, though. And, and, and what if it... What if it doesn't work? What if 6 o'clock is horrible? We'll do something radical like switch it to 6.30. We'll see. We'll tweak it. We'll change it. I don't know. We're going to give it a shot. Are you guys cool with that? Us just giving that a shot? You know, so, and, and the point being, so that we could provide more opportunities for more people, folks that don't get a chance or haven't had a chance yet to get in a small group or, or whatever, 
more people just have the chance to just sit around the table and talk and meet and see what God does. And we worship together and we pray together and we, you know, we eat together, which is always a good thing. So there you go. That was the smoothest uh, in, mid-sermon announcement ever, right? Nah, maybe not. But that's, we're starting this Wednesday. This Wednesday. So come on out at 6 o'clock. If we run out of food, we'll go buy some, we'll, get, we'll break out the animal crackers from the nursery. It'll be great. <laughs> Kidding, we'll have a plan. It'll be fine. But we're just asking you to come. We're asking you to make every effort. Not just to connect, but to understand that within a church family, like it within a regular family, you know what we're all doing at the same time? We're trying to realize our new identity. We're trying to unlearn all the stuff we've learned all our lives and trying to connect with God on a new level and learn new stuff and unwrap and ditch some of the old stuff. And do you know that's not easy to do? Nod at me if you get me. That is hard. And you know what is even harder? If you get a big group of people and they're all trying to do it at the same time, it gets messy. But why not, man? Life is messy. And most of us have spent whole our entire lives avoiding messy or pretending messy's not there or hiding it. You know what? Let's ditch that and let's just be together. And let's just do this journey together and let's have grace for each other. Let's make allowance for each other's fault and faults and let's believe that God can unify us in His Holy Spirit. That's what we believe here at Church on the Trail. So that's something that happens. A couple more things that happen. We're going to go really fast because I took way too long telling the story about Shivers Junior High third string basketball. All right? So there's another thing that takes place when stuff happens, when we start getting our identity thing right. God's gifts are released or they're engaged. And I can't even remember my line. Um, Emerge. God's gifts emerge. Cool word. So God's gifts emerge. Now, we don't have time to, to unpack all this, but there are, there are two things he says. In verse 7 of this chapter, he says, um, however, God has given each of us a special gift through the genera- generosity of Christ. So we have, each as individuals have something to bring to the table when it comes to spiritual growth, spiritual connectedness, and being a part of the team. We all have something to bring to the table. Then he goes on a little bit later in the chapter, in verse 11, and it says that, God, that, that Christ even gave gifts to the church as a whole, and he lists five. He says, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. They're, these are the, what he's referring to is people who are, who are just called with their entire, like occupationally, like they are, they are called by God in his purposes, because there's purposes, all different kind of purposes, some of us are, 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 some of us may not be like, hey, I'm going to work on a church staff. You know, these are, these are like most of the time, oftentimes, full-time, like people doing this as an occupation. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. And they have a job. They have one goal. And it's not to do all the work. It's not to just be the professional Christians who will put on a show for all the Christians who have other things to do in their life. Their job is to equip us to do the work of the ministry because we are a team. We're not 
we're, we, we come to church to function and experience God as a team and to bless other, each other and other people as a team, not to come and watch all, those, all the stage people do their thing. We are a team. We all have gifts. You have a gift that I don't have. And that's why you're a part of this church family. So that you can bring what's unique and, and gifted from you and you can bring it to the table and we can begin to function as a, as a team that can get things done for the Lord. Another thing that happens when we start to get our identity thing figured out is we grow up. We grow up. Um, we're not going to have time because I, we were, we're like really swinging towards the end here. But I encourage you in your uh, notes handout you got, it's uh, verses 13 through 16, uh, or 13 through 15. And uh, basically it says that when all these things start happening, when we start living a, a life worthy of the calling because of God's love and power, we start growing in unity. The gifts that God has given us all start connecting and, and, and syncing up. And then we as people, as individuals, and as a collective, we start to grow up. We start to mature. And one of the cool things that happens when we mature is that we're no longer just blown about, as it says, blown back and forth, as the verses say, by different teachings or cool ideas or whatever. We're, we're solid. We're starting to grow. We're starting to get strong. And it also says that one of the things that comes out of that is that we learn to speak the truth in love. How many of you in your church life have ever, ever heard the phrase, speak the truth in love? Raise your hand. Anybody heard that phrase? It's a great phrase. It's in the Bible, of course. You'll see it in your notes. And it's a, even we don't have time to put it on the screen. But the point is, it's in there. And it is ridiculously misused. Every time somebody says, speak the truth in love, they're using it as an excuse to drop relationship and conversation bombs all over the place and make people mad. And you say something harsh and mean and offensive, and people go, whoa, dude, chill. And you go, dude, speaking the truth in love, man. You know, like the Bible says. And that's not what that is about. You read this entire passage, it's about becoming more and more like Christ. More and more like Christ. Speaking the truth in love, yes, it does mean having hard conversations and being willing to take those risks. And trying to have the hard conversations without losing your temper. And Lord knows I need help with that. Anybody else relate to that? (laughs) But you know what else speaking the truth in love is about? It's about speaking the truth about me. I need to learn to speak the truth about me. This is not a license for me to start, start going, you. I know truth about you, and here it comes. Boom! Love you. <laughs> How about speaking the truth about my own self, about my own faults, about my own issues, and saying, I, I need help. I need my friends. I need my church family. I need the people I ate with last Wednesday night. Wink, wink. I need my community that can help me with the truth about me. And then sometimes we will take risks and we'll step out there and we'll say hard truths 
to our friends. But it goes both ways. We grow up. That's maturity. Have you ever heard two adults arguing or going through some relationship drama? Have you ever seen that happen? They're grown adults. But you've ever thought, what are you, nine? That is so junior high. Anybody relate, can relate to having seen that happen? Anybody brave enough to say that was you? Because <laughs> I've done it. We want to grow up. We want to become mature, and it can happen. But the, the first domino is, is choosing to take our identity and draw it out of the deep well of God's love and trust His great power to make that identity a reality in the way I live my life. And then my identity will start resulting in my activity. I'm going to ask the band to come up. I'm going to throw something at you. If you're taking notes, this isn't even in your notes. There's one last thing that, that, that happens in this chapter or in this, these verses. And it said that when we get our identity thing going in the right direction, stuff gets done. Things get done. Verse 16. I want you to read verse 16 with me. It'll be on the screen. And it says, He, Jesus, makes the whole body, that's us, fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow, that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Whoa, 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 time out. Are you saying that as each part does its own special work, It helps the other parts grow. Do you understand that that means me being obedient and and following Christ and bringing my gifts and doing my part and adding my value to the team as a whole, that that helps you grow? Do you understand that if you and I don't bring our stuff to the table... We don't grow the way we should. As everybody brings their stuff to the table, their gifts, their, their, and, and, and does our work and stay in our lane and, and, and be obedient, it, you help me grow. I help you grow. We help each other grow. And stuff gets done. And we get healthy. Stand with me as we close in prayer. Father, I pray that you would make this truth sink deep into our hearts that that we can we can grow up we can become mature we can get past the childish stuff and the childish drama of our lives but it doesn't happen overnight it doesn't happen with the snap of the fingers our fingers it happens way back when we decide to draw our identity from the well of your love and trust your power to make it happen. In Jesus' name, help us, Lord. Amen. I want to ask you something before we uh, get the band playing and get out of here. Perhaps you came in here today and you're not even sure, you know, where you stand with God. Maybe you're not even sure what your final decision would be. But do I even want to follow Christ? Do I even want to do this Bible thing? Do I want to be a church guy or a church girl? You know, I don't know. I just want to remind you that we all have been given an invitation to live a life 
It's different than the kind of life we've led up till now. A life that gives us hope, a life that allows us to lean into a love that is so deep we can't even explain it, and access to a power to change our lives beyond anything we could imagine. Maybe today is your day to say yes to that invitation. Can we pray one more time together about that? Let's do that. Lord, draw hearts to you. Invite us in to your presence, Lord. Invite us into your family. Help us, Lord. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I'm going to ask you if this is on your heart today to say yes to the invitation for the forgiveness of your sins and for the start of a new life of faith and a new identity that Jesus himself will speak to you. If you want to say yes to that, then I encourage you, offer this little prayer in your heart, out loud, or write it down. Say, Father in heaven, I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I need your help. I say yes to your invitation. I invite Christ to be the leader of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. It's been a fun day. Thank you for staying a little extra as we, as we went along this morning. I'm going to invite our host teams to come forward. We'd like to close our gathering by one more song of worship and receiving an offering as the song is played here in just a moment. We'd like to say that if today you've made a spiritual step, maybe you made the spiritual step that we just prayed about a moment ago, kick-starting your faith journey, coming to Christ and seeking forgiveness from Him. Maybe that was you today. Then I encourage you, allow us to come alongside you and pray for you. We've got a prayer team that stands in the back corner and they're there as folks leave. They sometimes stop for prayer. Maybe you could stop and share with one of those folks, hey, I invited Jesus to become my leader and my forgiver today. Share that with them. Come see one of us, uh, one of the leaders out in the hallway perhaps. Or maybe write down on the connection card in the seat back in front of you, I made Jesus my leader and forgiver. Whatever the case may be. It's the beginning of a, of a pretty cool journey for you and we're excited for you now uh, as I said we'll, the band will play a song the offering buckets make their way we encourage you to place your offering and your tithes in the buckets and we also ask you to just enjoy this time of worship let's uh